Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Kimmy Culp, and I'm the host of All the Wiser. Have you ever wondered if you are a good listener? I thought I was until I recorded today's episode with Richard Mullinder. As a world-famous hostage negotiator, he has dedicated his life to the lost art of listening. His ability to listen and listen well is the difference between life and death. This is a man who has negotiated with the world's most famous terrorists. He has led high-stakes conversations with criminals on the verge of taking the lives of their hostages and everyday people on the brink of suicide. In our conversation, he reveals all of his secrets about what it means to be a truly good listener and how this can change our personal and professional relationships. Considering his successful outcomes and conversations with the Taliban, I hope you will listen very closely and apply his wise words to your own life. Today's episode is benefiting MD Anderson Cancer Center. While cancer is not the topic of today's interview, it is something Richard is living with. In a disease we have spent a lot of time talking about on All the Wiser. MD Anderson is at the forefront of converting science into real world clinical advances that reduces the devastating effects of cancer in people's lives. You can learn more about their work and check out the hero pictures of their nurses and doctors by following them on Instagram at MD Anderson Cancer Center. I promise you have a lot to learn from Richard. And after the interview, I have a fun announcement of a few things we have on the horizon. Here's today's interview with Richard Mullinder. Hello, Richard, and welcome to All the Wiser. Oh, thank you. And good evening to you from from Oxford. I was going to say, we're on very different time zones. <laughs> uh, we are. On very, yes, it's true. <laughs> it is nighttime there and morning here in Los Angeles. Well, thank you again. As I just shared with you, I've had a lot of fun and I'm already learning from researching know your story and all of your great lessons. So uh, I'm excited to share them with our listeners. I hope it'll be as exciting as you expect. (laughs) So one question that I always like to start with, I believe rather than my introducing you, is to have you introduce yourself. How would you introduce yourself? How would I introduce myself? I think I've had a, a long and varied life. I've enjoyed my life. I've played a number of different roles in life, including being in the military, uh, the police, but I've also worked in factories just on the shop floor. I've become a welder and since leaving the police have now become, I suppose, somewhat of a relatively successful businessman. Yes, I would say so. 
And we are going to talk about that business today because it's fascinating. (laughs) What was the backdrop of your childhood, if you can paint a picture for me? Yeah, it was... um, So my father had had gone to war in the Second World War and had been captured in... Uh, in France at Dunkirk at the very beginning of the war and had spent six years in a prisoner of war camp and then came back. And I had two brothers who were born before the war. So they obviously waited for him. He's in prisoner of war for six years. And then he came back. Uh, we lived in a place called Tulsil, which is just outside Brixton, which is, I don't like to use the word poor, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't a particularly um, rich area, shall we say. Six kids. My dad worked in the laundry. My mum worked as a nursemaid, and we were, I suppose, a happy family in the, in its own way. We didn't have much, but we didn't need it, really. And that's the backdrop, I suppose. The area was quite tough, but when you live in an area like that, I think anyone that lives in an area like that, it becomes your home anyway, so you don't really think of it as being tough. It's just what it is. And you eventually joined the military. Why do you think you were drawn to the military and... Was that right out of, you know, high school or university or were there jobs in between? So I I went to the military, I think, purely because all my brothers have been in the military. And I think to some extent it was expected of me to go into the military. And so I did. I worked in the, for the government in the customs and excise for a year after leaving school. I'd gone to a good school. I got a good education. I think I I ruined, I didn't ruin it, but I think I didn't uh, take advantage of the education I got. So I didn't come away with any great exam results or anything like that. I didn't go to university. And um, I spent a year working for the customs and then I went into the army as a private or as a fusilier as it was. And I spent four years in there and come out as a corporal. So you leave a corporal. Where do you land next? What happens in your life professionally after that? So I became a welder. I started welding, did welding for four years. I worked in factories um, I worked in a shop. I did anything really that came my way to some extent. As long as I was earning money, I didn't mind. And I only needed enough money to have a good time. So it wasn't really a big deal. So that's what I did. And then my wife got pregnant. We had a son and I thought, okay, best I do something about it. And I joined the police. And what is your initial job with the Metropolitan Police? Oh, it's like uh, all police officers in London do the same thing. You spend the first two years, it's called your probationary period, and basically you walk the streets and you walk the streets as a as a general PC. And um, it's a good life. It's good fun. I mean, once you get past the initial nerves of actually having to arrest somebody, which is always that kind of, oh, should I, shouldn't I? You know, have I got the law on my side, et cetera, et cetera. There's always that kind of, as you start, that nervousness. But once you get past that, I think... You just start to enjoy yourself. It's a, it's a fascinating career, and I've had a wonderful time. I mean, I think the only word that I can describe my police career was, was just great fun. You meet great people. You go into all sorts of different situations. You find yourself in some funny situations. Most of them are funny. Generally, the people you meet are, are nice people. They've probably been in trouble in some way, or you come up against, you know, I suppose what you call the, the villains or the perpetrators, but... A lot of them are really quite funny and they're, they're really quite, you know, they've got some real characters. So I think it's one of those things, if, as long as you don't take it too seriously, you can enjoy it and still do a good job. You eventually go beyond, far beyond walking the streets of London. And today we're going to talk about the art of listening and how that eventually becomes your, I would say, superpower. 
and propels the trajectory of your career. At what point do you switch from being, you know, a patrol officer on the streets or sort of evolve into a role where listening becomes critical? Well, I would imagine it was always critical, but where you sort of start to hone that skill in a bigger way with higher stakes. Yeah, I think um, I think the point you make is that the listening is always there. I think we, we have to make this uh, determined from the outset that, that communication is about survival. We, we learn to communicate to survive. And, and I think a lot of people that come from what I would call, you know, tougher backgrounds uh, are much more emotionally intelligent than those that come from a nice, easy middle-class background, for instance. So there is, I think, you know, I'd already been learning a lot about how to communicate and how to, you know, you learn very quickly when you're in certain areas that is this going to be a row or is it going to be a fight? And you need to make that decision quite quickly because if it's going to be a fight, you then have to determine, do I fight them or do I run? Because if they're much bigger than you or much harder than you, then probably your best idea is to get away. So all of that is is emotional intelligence. And a lot of that comes from watching, listening, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I was already tuned into it, perhaps, you know, innately, purely because I had to be. And then... After about two and a half years, I, I came out of the uniform and I went into the CID, which is the essential, which is it basically it's a detective. So I became a detective. And from that moment on, it's, it's a different way of policing because you're, you don't so much walk in the street as you are dealing with the criminals when they come into the police station, et cetera, et cetera. So it's much more involved, shall we say. So this is when the interviewing skills, which are, you know, the listening skills, begin to translate into intelligence. And you were at the heart of some very famous negotiations that ended well. So I would love to inform our listeners about these really high stakes situations you were in. And the first one is Norman Kember. Can you explain who Norman was and how you eventually intersected in his life? Uh, Norman Kemba was a very religious man, went out to Iraq, I think, to do some sort of ministry out there and was kidnapped uh, along with uh, three or four other people. And basically with, with Norman Kemba, because the people that had him, we always thought that they were going to kill him anyway. So that's, there's always a, you know, there's a moment where you think who's actually taken the person and what is their intent. And so we decided or we thought from the outset that there was a good chance that he was going to get killed. So our role becomes slightly different then, and what you're looking to do is to is to try and keep them alive as long as you can, basically, in order that you know, with a hope that he's going to be rescued. And how do you do that? Well, I'm not really sure. I can say, if I'm honest, because I think you know, it depends who listens to this podcast to some extent. But you do it by you're talking to the people. There's always a hope. There is always a hope that you can come to a negotiated resolution. That's what you're always aiming for. The problem comes is when. You, when any time that you have to go to, say, the military or you go to any sort of um, firearms initiative or you know, that kind of initiative, there's always a chance that someone's going to get killed. And, and that's the last thing you want as a negotiator. So you're always thinking, well, how can I convince this person that the best thing to do is to release this person? That's that's your job because that's, that's what you've got to put forward and that's what you've got to convince them it's the right thing to do. And it's it's it's... You work as a team, you come up with ideas, you try the ideas out, some work, some don't. And all the time, you know, you've got to convince the person, which which is true. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, 
you don't want to kill anybody, you know, as a negotiator. That's the last thing you want to happen. What you want to do is to effect the release of everybody without anyone getting hurt. Norman's story was widely covered around the world at that time. Yeah. And as you mentioned, when you and I did the pre-interview, there's still things that are confidential that you, that you, you, you can't yeah. speak in specificity, which is fascinating yeah. after all these years. Well, I think so much. it's not so much about um, stuff that went on. It's, it's about more that we were doing and what you try. Because I think this is where the problem comes when someone sits down and says, well, this is what hostage negotiators do. And, and of course, if I was taking someone hostage, then I would, I'd listen very carefully to what hostage negotiators do. Because, you know, why would you give away your tactics to some extent? And, and I really don't think there are tactics. I've always thought that there's no secret to hostage negotiation. It's just good communication skills and trying to understand the person in front of you. It's all very well. We call people terrorists and, I, you know, and it's an easy label to label people. But why are they doing what they're doing? That's got to be what we've got to understand. We've got to start to understand why people think that this is the right way to do things. Because only then can we then really start to convince them that there must be a better way. But, you know, if you're not being listened to, if someone's not being listened to, then you're going to get someone else's attention. It's what our kids do. They're not being listened to. They start screaming. They start shouting. They start being awkward. It's what they do. Because if you're not listening to me, I'm going to make you listen to me. And that's what it's about. Well, that's fascinating. So I thought it was confidentiality, but what you're saying is you don't want to inform somebody who will, you know, be at the helm of an action yeah. that, that could be life-ending. That makes yeah. a lot of sense to me. Yeah. There was another story about the three UN workers that were held captive by the Taliban. What can you tell me about that experience? Um, so it was, I was in Kabul. It was very complex. There was a lot going on. There were three people taken. They were from different countries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There was a, the election had just taken place, so the Afghan government wanted to look um, like they were competent, which they were, you know. And and everyone was involved. You had the Americans involved with the intelligence, etc. You had the United Nations because that's who they were. Were they working with the United Nations? So you had so many stakeholders, and and that's what created the problem, the complexity of it, really. And then, of course, you're working through an interpreter, which means that you're missing the nuances. You have to understand that you don't listen for, you, you can't translate word for word. You have to translate meaning. And then you don't, you know, and they don't necessarily use the language the same that we do, the same way that we do. So there was a lot of that going on. And it was, um, it was exhausting, but fascinating. I mean, in, in that way. And, and luckily, you know, they came out, but, um, you never quite know what made them release them. Yeah, and I think that's the same in any situation. I've had people in suicide interventions who just said, I'm bored now, and they came off the bridge. And I didn't mind. If it took me eight hours to bore them, to get them off the bridge, I didn't mind at all, you know. So, But that's the problem, is, is that there's no, there's no magic, like you can't wave your wand and say, oh, we'll use this and that will work. You just don't know what's going to work. Yes, we talked to, and I think I shared this with you, um, Sergeant Kevin Briggs, who was the guardian of the Golden Gate, mm -hmm. and he talks so much about listening. You know, he really says it, it wasn't what I said. And that I was I was curious because his negotiations were, you know, he, he's widely known related to suicide in the specific bridge, but you had a spectrum. There were all life and death, right? People negotiating with the hostage takers and people ready to take their own life. Is there a distinction in that communication? Is it, or is, is the 
act of the listening still rooted in the same principles? Absolutely. They're all the same principles. So you're right, we have the spectrum. We go from people committing suicide, domestic sieges. Um, We go from armed robberies that have gone wrong. You go from terrorist situations and then international kidnaps. And you've got to cover all of them. And they're all the same tools. Let me give an example. So if one of your children locks themselves in a bathroom, that's exactly the same tools that you would use and I would use to get that person out as I would someone who's thinking of killing themselves. So if one of my children locked themselves in the bathroom, which... I'm sure it will happen at some time. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> and you were coaching me. What would you say? Oh, first and foremost, right from the outset, always be compassionate, always be kind. Just start, you know, start from that. Be compassionate, be kind, and find out why they think locking themselves in the bathroom is is the only way to get noticed or the thing that they need to do. Just find out what it is. and And don't be, you know, don't rush them. And don't make any silly comments outside the bathroom door that you will regret later. So even in the instance you're negotiating directly or not with the Taliban or terrorist, you lead with compassion and kindness? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else can you lead with? You've got nothing else. You, you can't... The, people don't do things... People don't do bad things in these sort of situations just to be nasty. Sometimes they do. I mean, I, I, okay, there are some people out there who are psychopaths, you know, yeah, okay. But they can be terrorists or they can be whatever. But most people have a reason for doing what they're doing. And you've got to understand that reason before you can even start to think about a solution. If I'm talking to someone on a bridge and they say to me, well, I've lost $5,000, I'm going to have to kill myself. You can't just say to them, it's only $5,000. It may only be $5,000 to me, but it's not $5,000 to them. It's their life. So you've got to go back and find out about what it is that's caused, you know, why is this particular incident having this particular impact on this particular person on this particular day? And you must find that out. And you can only find out by listening to them. You're never going to convince anyone by talking at them. You've got to listen to them first. It's so interesting because when I was reading about your work and now hearing you speak, it brought me back. I had a chapter in my career where I worked for Oprah Winfrey, who was obviously masterful at interviewing. And there was one thing she said that really stuck with me. And she said, you know, from five to 95, from celebrities and presidents, everybody had this one thing in common, which was, do you see me? Do you hear me? And does what I say matter? Yeah. And I think like when I was reading your work and your message, that really is just the collective shared human condition that we all want to be seen and heard and understood, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, the trouble comes in life. Most of us, when we hear, I think you, when we go, I think you mean this, we work off that. So, I know what you mean. You mean that. And actually, you don't know if that's true. And what you've got to do is then you've got to get clarity. So, you've got to check it out. So, I think you mean this. Am I right? Almost. Yeah, that's, that's not quite the way to do it, but it's all similar to that. And of course, and then they go, right, well, no. They can either say, well, yes, exactly, which means they feel understood. Or they say, no, it's not that, it's this. And now they feel understood. And once they feel understood, they'll start to trust you. And once they start to trust you, they give you permission to influence them. And then once they give you permission to influence them, ultimately, if you want to take it, you can gain control. But you have to go down that line. But look at what's first. It's not talking, it's listening. And you said there's key words that you have people write down. And yeah. I mean, 
your message now, and, and I want to talk about that, is, you know, it's the FBI, it's you know, police officers, it's it's military intelligence, it's also business leaders. So what are those keywords that people should lean into? Oh, the keywords only ever depends. You can't say these, these are keywords. What you can say is every descriptive word is a keyword. So if someone says, um, uh, this is awful. Okay, so what's awful about? You need to know what awful is about. You know, it's been really difficult. What does difficult mean? And if it's been really difficult, then it's been very difficult. So why is it really difficult? So those are kind of key words. When you listen for any descriptive word that someone adds to it, emphasizers, swear words are an emphasizer, aren't they? The thing you must remember, and this is the most important question, and I, and I want to put this across really forcefully. There's one question that everybody's asking, that's you and them, and that's the what's in it for me. Why should I answer this question? Why should I do what you're asking me to do? What will I get from it? And if you can't give them a benefit, then there's no reason why they should do it. If you say to someone, I need you to talk to me, good for you. I don't need to talk to you. You need it, not me. If you say to someone, I need you to talk to me because this is really important that we get this right for you, now they'll talk to you. And as you shared, these are literally life and death. Did you have negotiations that the outcome was death? And how do you experience that as a hostage negotiator? It's an individual reaction to it. Um, we had two people killed very early on in, in Iraq. And they were very upsetting for the team, I think. Because um, one, we, we always knew it was going to be very difficult. And it turned out to be. And the other one was just unlucky, really. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And and I think the, the, the group got rid of them because they couldn't caught with them, if that makes sense. So it was a really difficult one. But we were very, I think the whole team were not so much struggling, but you're thinking this is, you know, what are we not, what are we not doing? You know, we're constantly, because you blame yourself. There's no question about that. And every person I know who's lost someone in a suicide, something like that, you know, the, the first question they ask is, could I have done something differently? You know, I think the thing about hostage negotiators, which I love, is that there's no real ego. And, and no one ever says, look at me, look what I've done. All they ever say is, oh, thank God that's over. You know, and that's, it is just a sense of relief. So I think I was lucky, as I say, I think I was lucky that I didn't lose anybody in front of me. But um, but you always feel, could we have done something differently? And you build this reputation of these incredible and impactful interviewing skills. And eventually you're asked to become the lead trainer at the Scotland Yard's Hostage in Crisis Division. For those people who don't know, can you explain the Scotland Yard and the types of people that that you're training and coaching, what their jobs were? The interviewing, so I became the lead or one of the lead trainers for the advanced interviewing, and they would be all the people that were dealing with the terrorists, they'd be dealing with um, rapists, murderers, et cetera, et cetera. We have a very different way of interviewing in England to what happens in the States. So, for instance, there's always a solicitor present. It's always, always tape recorded. You're only ever allowed to, to interview anyone for a maximum of two hours before you give them a rest. So there's, it's a very, it's it's kind of very, you have to be cleverer, I think. I don't, I don't mean that being rude, but you have to be quite smart because you've got to think harder, I think, to some extent. And then there's two things I was good at, I think, if, if I'm, I'm pretty good at. One is, is the listening. I understand listening. I can break it down into small chunks, which help people. I make it accessible. So I'm, I'm quite good at that, I think. And the second thing I'm good at is designing courses. So actually you know, putting together a course so that it flows, you know, in, in such a way that it builds on it as it goes along. 
And I think when I went to the hostage negotiation unit, the course was a great course. It was always a great course. It's an incredibly intense course. You start at 8 o'clock in the morning, you finish at 11 o'clock at night, you know, and you do that for two weeks. And at the end of that two weeks, you are capable of walking out onto a bridge and talking someone off a bridge. So, you know, you've got to be right at the top of your game at the end of that two weeks. But you're also tired a lot of the time. And it just needed a little bit of tweaking and a little bit more, you know, setting it right on the right, making it the shape right, I suppose, is the right way to put it. And the crossover between interviewing and hostage negotiation, the skills, are they're all the same thing. I always make the comparison between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Uh, Luke Skywalker is a good guy. Darth Vader is a bad guy. They're both Jedi, so they've got the same skills. And that's why persuasion and manipulation are exactly the same thing. It's just the intent. Same skills again. The protocol at Scotland Yard was really reshaped, reimagined, and implemented by your leadership. Where do you think when you came in that training was, I guess, broken in a sense? Or where were the cracks in the program and the efficacy they had in the world, how effective they were at saving lives? They were incredibly effective. I, I, I can't really say that. I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't like to say that I was the person that changed the world. I don't think I was for one second. I think what I bought was some new skills around the interviewing, some of the skills that we'd used in interviewing, and we used them slightly differently because we had to. Um, I equally took a lot of the hostage negotiation skills and put them back into the interviewing world. We have about 155 suicide interventions in London a year. We win 154. You know, so the rate, and that hasn't gone up or down for years, you know, that that was always the kind of rate we would get. But as I think a lot of the time it's um, where, where you worry so much in suicide interventions, especially when they're on a, on a ledge or on a, a bridge, is that they'll slip. And so it has to become slicker and quicker and, and, you know, maybe just, I know that sounds dreadful, but it's because you don't want them to die stupidly. Why do you think you're so good at, listening. I mean, the fact that your father was a prisoner of war is fascinating to me, but do you think that it was nature and you were born that way or can you pinpoint experiences that shaped and honed this skill in you? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think the point you make about my dad, my, my, my dad was a great man, but he also had a quite a, you know, uh, he was quite volatile, as you can appreciate. You know, he was probably suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which at that time we didn't really know what it was. So, you know, it was kind of like, I think his doctor said to him, he said to my mum and dad, he said, basically, um, you go away and work hard and you have children and lots of them. And that was basically how they got over their post-traumatic stress disorder, you know. So I think it, it, you become, I think all of us are innately good at listening. We just never really thought about what it is. And so... What happened was, I think, the more work I became involved with the interviewing and then with the negotiation and then with the training and then coming out into the business world as well and realizing that we had to kind of change it a bit or kind of refocus it, suddenly listening, you suddenly looked at this and you thought, hang on a second. And I remember watching two of my negotiators and it was a practice negotiation, so it was an exercise, but they kept missing the clues and I kept thinking, well, something's wrong here. And there's two choices there. Either they're lousy negotiators or my training is. And the, and the hardest thing to do is to say, well, my training must be. So I went away and looked at the training and went, all, went away and listened to the words, listened to what they'd missed and thought, we don't teach them to do that. And at that moment, it changed everything from my way of looking at communication because I suddenly realized that, you know, active listening skills, what we know as the active listening skills have nothing to do with listening. Not in your head doesn't help you listen summarizing back what you're saying is talking. 
looking someone in the eyes, looking, watching body language, is watching. It's not listening. And so you really need to get back right into the depth of what is listening. And listen is your ears. That's all it is. It's your ears. You listen with your ears. I also know, and today we are going to support with our one-for-one model, a cancer nonprofit making an impact and a dent in people's lives. And you are a cancer survivor. How did that impact you? Um, uh, Yeah, I suppose I am a cancer survivor because I've had uh, my kidney out. I'm still on, you know, six-month checks and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah. It's really interesting. I think some of the time when I was in, in Belfast in my very early life and you get shot at, you suddenly, you know, trivialities become very minor and you just don't worry about them. I think with cancer, where it suddenly hit me was that um, people say, yeah, well, you could always die tomorrow, get run over by a bus. And I always say, yeah, but I can see the bus and, and you can't, you know. And I think it's like, it's just a little thing in the back of your head all the time that says, you know, if you get a cold, you think, yeah, I wonder what that is and, and that kind of thing. But most of the time, I think I get a six-month day of execution. I go away and enjoy myself. You might as well be positive. I think. Thank you for clarifying. I did not know, you know where you were in your oh. your journey. So no, no worry. I will hold you in my heart for that oh, journey. Thank you. So I think you've really poetically described the lost art of listening, which I thought was just a great yeah. descriptive. Why do you think we lost it, and why is it so hard? for people in our modern times? Because when I thought about what you said, there really is this collective inability to lean in and truly listen. Yeah. So why do you think that is? It's too hard. I think that's the problem. So let me let me kind of give you a, a very quick micro teach, I suppose. Um, so I broke listening down into seven categories and, and seven things that you listen for. So we listen for facts. So, we, we, you know, you go into a meeting, you're listening for the facts of the case. And you have to be very careful that you get a distinction between what the facts are and what the emotions. Saying somebody's angry is not a fact because they may not be angry. They may be frustrated. They may be all sorts of things. So it's, it's an emotion. So you listen for facts. You listen for emotions. You listen for motivators. What's motivated them to do this thing today? One of the questions we ask ourselves, you know, when, you, when you're talking about terrorism or armed robberies or, or whatever, suicides, the, f- the first question you ask yourself, why today? Why not yesterday? Why not tomorrow? So what's happened today? So, 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 that's, so that's the motivators. Then you listen for values and beliefs. What's their value system? If you're a person that believes in fairness, then I know that I can use that as a lever against you to some extent, not against you, but, you know, in order to convince you to go my way. So you've got values and beliefs, and then you get currencies. So the currencies is what makes you like, you know, how do you like to work? I will work out, I'm going to work out how you like to work because that enables me as a leader to give you a happy life, really, because I'm going to set the job up in such a way that you're going to enjoy it. And finally, benefits. And the benefits are the easiest thing to work out. What's the benefit for this person? And, and the obvious way of learning the benefits is to get someone to write down every question you're asked. Because the questions you get asked tell you what their concerns are, their needs are, and where they see the benefits. So they're the seven things. So there's there's listening broken down for you. So that's what I listen for. Now, you can imagine if you're going into a meeting like this, trying to work all of those things out. And it's an awful lot of work. And for us as hostage negotiators, we work in teams of four. One person only talks and the other three people listen. And you've talked about everything from, you know, patrol officer on foot to the military to Scotland Yard and eventually to entrepreneurship and business, which is where you are today. And you founded the Learning Institute where you 
teach people these key skills and how to apply them in their lives. And I was reading on the website that you use actual role-playing of a hostage negotiation. So you sort of create the life or death situation and somebody within the corporate group or is, is actually held hostage. And it reminded me a group of my girlfriends, my mom friends in the community worked with Navy SEALs and these were really self-defense training. And I wasn't there, but they said they were blindfolded as part of the practice and sort of put in the middle of the circle and they didn't know where people would be coming from. And this was about, you know, women and being secure and safe in their homes and having the the skills. So I, I thought about that. So A, I think that's fascinating that that happens. And what emotions do you think it evokes? Because when I read that, I thought stress. Like, how do you even manage the stress? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what comes up for people? They, they love it. I mean, it's one of those, we, I mean, we... we we actually set hostage negotiators against them. So they're up against the best. And, um, and but the equally, the hostage negotiators know exactly what they're feeling like because we've all been there and therefore they're kind. You know, they, they will, and it's that kind of, it's just getting people to think. But the great thing about them, quite honestly, is that they work in teams and they get to work as a team because you, you, you realize you cannot do it on your own. And and once they start to work as a team, they can take that into ordinary business negotiations. So often on business negotiations, people walk in as three individuals, or they walk in. I'm you know I'm the lawyer, I'm the sales, and I'm I'm finance. Well, that's your job. What's your role in this negotiation? And your role in the negotiation is to become a team, and that's what we teach. And it's but it's great fun, and I can assure you that people love it. They don't go away. I think they all go away thinking, gosh. I want to be a hostage negotiator rather than oh my god, but it is stressful and it's 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 amazing because you know you know it's a role play, you know you you, you right from the outset you know it's a role play, but they throw themselves into it and of course the negotiators are are sharp you know they're quick. So you just talked about the impact in in business, which makes all the sense in the world to me now that I think about it. How it could you know really just greatly impacts your business in all the right ways. So I'm curious about that, if you can sort of high level say the impact when business leaders or teams become better listeners. In business, you'll find that people just start working better as teams and you start to pick up what's really going on. So often we tell someone to do something or we we listen and we think we understand what they mean and we go away and we go and do it and we get it wrong or they get it wrong and then we call them names or we call et cetera, et cetera, and it all becomes a blame game, et cetera. And if you're working as a team, if you understand each other, if you understand each other's needs, then you can work easily together because you understand where people are coming from. We're not all the same. We're all unique. You know, the thing I say about, and this is, this is, again, if you think about, go back to the terrorism side of it, imagine life, and, and I'm looking at it, and it's a mountain, and I'm looking at it from one side, and they're looking at it from a different side. That's all it is, but it's the same mountain. And when you're dealing with people, you know, the awkward people, why are they being awkward? Maybe that's because that's the only way they've ever got their way in the, in the past. So they continue to be awkward. You've got to understand them, and you only ever understand them by listening to them. So in business, the whole thing is to say to them, look, Make people trust you. Make people like you. They trust and like you. They talk to you as a friend. If they talk to you as a friend, they'll give away secrets without even meaning to. They will tell you everything you need to know, providing you're listening. And how does it 
the impact on our relationships? What is the impact? As you said, everybody wants to know what's in it for me. <laughs> yeah, the exactly. Im- the impact that, that people will have in their relationships and in, in their marriages. Yeah, all of it. Yeah. I don't know if this is the same case in, in America, but often a lot of people, a lot of women, when, when we're talking on the courses, they say, or a lot of men say, all my wife ever says to me, you never listen. And and that's a fundamental basic problem. And the problem is not, it's no one's problem. What it is, is that I think the playground mentality of men is, I've got a problem, come over here, smack that, sorted that out. And that's kind of, we sort, we solve problems very quickly. We don't, I don't think we think too cleverly at times. And therefore, we don't listen. I mean, and I'm not saying all men are like this. Please don't think that. I'm not being sexist in that way. If we could listen more to what's really going on in both sides and understand the person that we're dealing with, we often see that we're mistaken. We're analysing that person in such a way. We're giving them bad. That's the wrong word. I can't think of the word. But we're making them bad when actually they're not being bad. They're just being either careless or they're, or they're just being themselves. But we don't spend the time to get to know people, really know people. How do you think the world would be different if we all learned how to truly listen? Oh, it would be fabulous. It's never going to happen, I don't think, but it would be fabulous. The trouble is, there's two things. It would be absolutely glorious because people would actually sit down. Instead of fighting, they'd say, right, okay, what's going on here? What is the problem? You know, why did the Somali pirates become pirates? Because all of the fish around Somalia were fished and therefore they had no industry. That's why they became pirates. You know, you don't have to agree with what they're doing. You do have to understand why they're doing it. And and, and so many other things have, have been born out of frustration, born out of uh, a need. You know, vigilante groups turn into terrorist groups. And you, you, you've got to start to understand each other. You've got to take the time to listen to each other and say, like, okay, look, let's try and sort this out. And there will be times when you need to compromise. There'll be times when they won't always do what you want them to do. But at least you've been heard. And that's the key. What do you want people to take away from your message? You've committed your life's work to mm-hmm. the skill of listening. What is the most important takeaway? Oh, just be compassionate, be kind, listen to what the person is telling you. You don't have to agree with them. You can often work it out that you can come to a compromise, but just don't see people as bad. Just see people as different and trying their way in the world. You know, and the moment you do that, you you, you treat them kinder. Well, I love it all. And, you know, it has so many applications. And I think whether people are listening and thinking about their businesses or their marriages or, in my case, my job, which is interviewing people. So thank you for bringing that value to everyone. I think it'll have an impact. And now we're going to do a little something I call the lightning round. Okay. (laughs) And I'm just going to ask you a question or say a statement. I know you will do a wonderful job listening. Because <laughs> <laughs> now it's up to you to uh, to answer the questions. Okay. A food you would never give up. Kentucky Fried Chicken. Who knew they had that in London? <laughs> Morning, noon, or night? Morning. How do you like your steak? Medium rare. Me too. Heston um, Blumenthal's version. <laughs> Turn it every 20 seconds for three minutes. Comes out a perfect steak every time. Wow. Even more takeaways here. <laughs> Favorite song? Um, Roll Me Away by uh, Bob Seger. Good one. Best advice you have ever received? Oh, gosh. 
do something bad or good, but get noticed. I like it. Thank you. As I shared, I think this is a gift to everyone (laughs) who is listening. No pun intended. And yeah, I just, I I appreciate it. And I think uh, your work will allow people to have more human connections in the world, which really matters. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Where can people find you, learn more about your work and the Listening Institute? Just go to the website. I think everything's on the website. So we will link to the website in the show notes for everyone listening. And we will also share it in our newsletter. Thank you again, Richard. Good night. It's been a pleasure. Good night. I hope you have a good night's sleep. I hope you have a great day and it is sunny. (laughs) It is. All right. Thanks again. Look after yourself. Bye-bye now. Take care. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Richard. I hope you learned as much as I did and you will not call my ass out if I happen to interrupt any upcoming All The Wiser guest. Before I sign off, I want to let you know that we are doing our first ever podcast giveaway. We will be announcing the details next month on Instagram. You can follow us there at All The Wiser Podcast and be the first to know about the juicy details and some other fun stuff we have on the horizon this spring. Thank you for making the time to tune in, and I hope you will try on some of your newly learned listening skills with someone in your life today. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.